kulture sećanja u dialogu. Slušate podcast Fonda za humanitarno pravo. This is Memory Cultures in Dialogue, the podcast of the Humanitarian Law Center from Belgrade, Serbia. My name is Jelena Đureinović. Today, we are talking about forensic anthropology and the search for the disappeared and victims of the conflict in Guatemala. The long civil war in Guatemala between state forces and leftist guerrillas lasted from 1960 until 96. This was an uneven war with a small leftist insurgency on the one side and a large-scale state response on the other in the context of the Cold War. Throughout more than three decades of the internal armed conflict, around 200,000 people were killed, of which 40,000 people were victims of enforced disappearances. The population of rural areas and indigenous Maya communities were especially targeted by the state with genocide and mass human rights violations committed by the military forces. The Guatemalan Forensic Anthropology Foundation, FAFG, was established in the 90s and works to provide forensic science to families of missing persons. So far, they have identified 4,000 disappeared and victims of conflict. The FAFG's work is incomparable to anything we know in civil society in the former Yugoslavia, engaging in identification and documentation of victims, forensic archaeology, forensic anthropology, and genetics. On the other hand, there are some connections between us because uh, the HLC as well as FAFG are both members of the Global Initiative for Justice, Truth and Reconciliation Consortium. Today, I have the pleasure to welcome Executive Director of the FAFG, Freddy Petrarelli, and the Head of Forensic Genetics, Michelle Stevenson. So for the beginning, could you tell me broadly, what is the role of forensic anthropology as a discipline in the post-conflict context? Well, thank you so much, Helena. I think the role of forensic anthropology is a pivotal initial role. Uh, in other words, we started with forensic anthropology. It was initially the families, the survivors, and the families of everyone who was killed or disappeared, who called on Dr. Clyde Snow, who was a forensic anthropologist from the US, from Oklahoma, and who had been to Argentina and Chile in the 80s, and was invited to come to Guatemala in 1990 by the surviving family members to help them look for their loved ones. And so Clyde brought with him this new way of investigating. And what I mean by new is, you know, in our country, because the conflict was still going on and because forensics still has taken a long time to develop, what it brought was a focused approach, an approach that, that really focused on the families, it focused on recovering the bodies properly, it focused on trying to individualize each one of the bodies, understanding that for the Mayan population, the body itself is really important. Death doesn't separate the body from life. So in your life, you need all of your dead loved ones to accompany you through life and to advise you. And when someone is not buried properly, that communication is broken. So the focus on the body was something that the indigenous and the Guatemalan population focused a lot on. And so the idea was to try to use forensic anthropology techniques to try to individualize bodies and eventually identify them to return them to the right families. That's how we started initially with forensic anthropology, then forensic archaeology, 
did an investigation and documentation of victims, and then eventually, in 2008, incorporated genetics. And now genetics changed the way we work because now we could focus not only on the cases where we had a hypothesis of who the victim could be, but also when we had no idea who the person was. And then if we had enough family members in a database, now we could search broadly and widely. And that changed, but it all started with forensic anthropology. How did you two personally get uh, involved in this work? Uh, Michelle, would you like to start maybe? Uh, well, uh, in my case, I'm a biochemist and um, I always knew that I wanted to be a scientist and I always knew that I wanted to apply science to actually help the society, to help people, not only to do research, but also to help, to actually help. I was finishing the university, my, my college degree, when FAFG started recruiting people for the Forensic uh, Genetics Laboratory. And uh, I, I, I have heard about FAFG before and I was fascinated by the work. And uh, so immediately I applied, I got chosen. And actually my first day at FAFG, I went to El Salvador to start my training. So on my first day I, I traveled and uh, I became even more fascinated with the work of forensic genetics because it actually combines what I was looking for, science and helping people. What about you, Freddy? You have been there since the beginning, right? But you didn't live in Guatemala at the time when the forensic team formed in the early 90s. Yes, I was, I was the fifth and last member of the team. There was a team formed in 1992. I joined the team in 95. And for me, you know, I grew up in Guatemala and my family left Guatemala in 1980 because of death threats. So I grew up in New York. Right when I was, kind of like Michelle, when I was about to graduate with an anthropology degree from Brooklyn College at the City University of New York, I met Dr. Clyde Snow. And he mentioned to me that he was, they were giving a course in Guatemala, a forensic anthropology course, and he was going to find out from the team if I could uh, be invited. They said yes. Uh, you know, I was Guatemalan, and so they invited me. I came to Guatemala, and uh, initially for two weeks, they offered me a position, and it just completely changed my life. I immediately fell in love with with the people and people's kindness and welcoming way of working side by side in this horrible horrible environment still during the conflict it, it was it was it's been impossible to leave it, i've been doing this for 26 years now and it's become my mission in life and i had the the great opportunity to work with clyde for over 20 years and so now I try to follow in his footsteps and keep his legacy going. For our audience that might not be familiar with how the whole process goes, could you somehow describe the process from finding the remains to identify them or from families contacting you to identifying someone and finding the remains? So uh, the FAFG has various departments as well. How does it all work? Well. You know, the work can start anyway. See, that's the, that's the beauty of it, that any case can start depending on how different it is. So in other words, if you have a disappeared loved one, you, the case might start with you coming to talk to our investigators, telling us, you know, who disappeared, telling us about your family and giving us a, a DNA sample. But it might also start with us finding a grave, an unknown grave inside of a former security installation that belongs to the state. 
And in both cases, what happens is those are sets of information that will get compared later down the road. But basically, it's take information from the families, build trust with the families, and that gets a sort of a snowball effect going where more and more families are coming to us. We're at the same time, while our investigators are taking samples, we're exhuming graves all over the country in different, you know, in old churches, in old schools, former military bases, graves that people find sometimes that they're working on their land. And in the labs, well, in the anthropology lab, we're trying to see if this is a male or female, if it's a tall person, if it had any trauma. We spend a lot of time trying to determine cause of death trying to understand how people died. And then, well, I'll let Michelle talk about the part when it all comes together at the DNA lab. Yeah, well, the forensic anthropologists, they collect uh, DNA samples, pieces of femur or uh, teeth from the bodies, and they get sent to the DNA laboratory. And at the same time, we're also receiving the vocal swabs that we collected from the family members. Uh, we process both type of samples. We extract DNA and then we get a uh, genetic profile and we put all of the genetic profiles in a specific software that allows us to compare all the family profiles with all the profiles we recover from the bones. And uh, we use a specific software to do that, uh, the same software that was developed uh, to identify the, the victims of the World Trade Center. And it's a very powerful so software that allows to do thousands of comparisons and to get DNA matches. Once we get a DNA match, uh, this is not an identification. We still need to corroborate all the information. We need to incorporate all the information we gather from the rest of the technical areas. And the whole process is called confirmation of identifications. And uh, this is the last technical part of the process. And uh, I will let Freddy continue with the last part of the process. Well, once we have an identification, in other words, once it's confirmed, then we notify the family members immediately. We notify them immediately because they've been waiting for decades. We want to make sure that, you know, somebody doesn't pass away a couple of days before being notified. So we notify them, then we write a report to the prosecutor's office. These are all criminal investigations. And then eventually we return the bodies with the authorization of the prosecutor's office and participate in the inhumation process. But all along the way, from the very beginning to the very end, the families are there with us. The families are there when they speak to us. They're there in the exhumation sites while we're exhuming the bodies and excavating the graves. They visit us in the labs in the anthropology lab and sometimes in the DNA lab. And then obviously they're there for the animation. So this is a, a process that involves working very closely with trust and transparency with the families. You also started with uh, storytelling and uh, life histories project uh, recently, speaking about families. How does that uh, fit into uh, your work on forensic anthropology? Well, several years ago, I was, uh, I've he I'd heard of this foundation that had been taking recording video interviews of survivors of the Holocaust. And we contacted them. It's the USC Shoah Foundation. They were started by Steven Spielberg. And they had around 50,000 recorded interviews of survivors of the Holocaust. We started talking to them. They came to Guatemala for a visit and they saw what we were doing. and. Well, their comments was that they had never seen such raw emotion in their lives. And they work with the Holocaust. I mean, 
And immediately after that, we decided to work together. So we were trained by them to, and we bought the equipment and we started taking life history interviews. We have over 650 life history interviews now. And what it does is it's another layer of trust. These interviews go, they're chronological in order. So in other words, you go from your first memory up to today. They, they, they're very different in the sense that they're not about a crime or about a missing person or about a disappeared person. They're about the person who's in front of you. They're about how did this person get here? And as they tell you how they got there, they're also telling you everything that they lived, how things changed in their communities, how they suffered sometimes terrible abuses. And one of the things that we're learning is, for example, that sexual violation, sexual assault, rape in women usually didn't come up often in our interviews because we're focused on identifying disappeared persons. But in the life history interviews, there's a lot of evidence, there's a lot of detail about you know rape and sexual assault. It was also used as a weapon of war. And that has opened up our eyes very much so that now we are interested in continuing this process and generating a large archive. How, how large? I don't know. As long as, you know, we, I want to keep going as long as we can and generate because from those interviews, we can then generate lesson plans for schools, right? So it's a process of learning about the past through the people who lived it and hearing about these horrible crimes to the people that it happened to in parallel to looking for, searching for, and identifying their loved ones. So it really makes our process whole and complete, I think. You mentioned uh, the prosecutor's office, but also schools and uh, school lessons. So I'm wondering, what is uh, your relation with uh, state institutions? Is there some kind of cooperation or official support for your work? Could it happen, in other words, that uh, the oral histories that you are doing would uh, actually be used in schools? Well, that's a great question. I think there's there's some possibility that they can begin to be used. We are working with some teachers. We have taken some teachers from uh, private schools and public schools and work with them. I think the Shaw Foundation has a good way of looking at this. It's not necessarily talking about the Guatemalan conflict or genocide in Guatemala, but it's talking about the injustices that happen to people. And so you might learn about the Holocaust, but learn about the Holocaust through survivor stories of Guatemala, Rwanda, for example, or other places. Because in the end, everything that happened in all these countries is shared by, by the families and by the survivors. We don't have a lot of relationship with state institutions. We do work with the prosecutor's office. We are trying to work with the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, with... Uh, the Ministry of Education, but a lot of times it's it's difficult to actually get anything going. We do not receive any support financially from them, though. We do not receive a single cent from the state of Guatemala. That's uh, It creates a lot of challenges, but at the same time, it's very liberating. We are completely autonomous and objective. The fact that we don't receive any funds from our own government allows us to gain trust from the families. So there's good things and bad things in all of it. Especially because state committed the crimes. So family members don't trust state institutions to carry out the investigations that they themselves committed. So as Freddie was saying, it's also uh, the positive side of this type of work not being funded by the government is this, that we can 
have more trust from family members because they committed the crimes. Slušate podcast Fonda za humanitarno pravo. Kulture sećanja u dijalogu. In a lot of articles that I've read about uh, FAFG, it is often mentioned that, for example, you have bodyguards and so on. How dangerous is your work in Guatemala? And Or maybe in other words, like better to ask it this way, how is it perceived in society? I think there was a time when the former president of Guatemala, at the time of the worst crimes, was running for office again. So in the early 2000s, 2001 to 2003. And then there was a very specific political interest. And we became sort of a thorn on the side of these individuals. They believed that we made them look bad by doing the work that we do. Things have changed since then, and we don't receive death threats. The most that happens now is uh, defamation campaigns, usually by the children of the commanders of the bases where we find bodies. And there's accusations that we plant evidence or that we, you know, bring bones from other places and put them inside these locations. And I think the worst of it is an, a criminal accusation. There was a criminal accusation against me uh, and against the board, the founding members of the FAFG for things like international crimes and taking bribes because we accept donations and accusations saying that we love the guerrilla, but we hate the military. And I think it all falls into sort of like the Cold War kind of 80s lingo where, you know, you accuse somebody of something and that's enough. It's not enough anymore. We're, we're scientists. You know, we don't speak. It's actually the remains, the graves, the family members. They are the ones who speak. And all we do is facilitate that voice and that message to the different institutions. For example, the prosecutor's office. We recover evidence of crimes. And for families, we identify the loved ones. And hopefully for history, where we're recovering truth. And that obviously is not in everyone's interest, but the people who are against the work are, there's not very many of them. There's, there's just a few of them. They just have a lot of power. And I think eventually family members will continue to empower through unity and trust and continue to grow. And eventually this will get into the history books and people will learn about what happened in Guatemala. What about uh, the process of transitional justice in Guatemala? There was also a truth commission and uh, there were there have been some trials against perpetrators. What are the main problems in this field? And are there still hopes for transitional justice to really take place? Well, I just want to tell you that I've been called the most optimistic pessimist by a couple of people. So it depends. I've been doing this for a long time. And uh, yes, there was a truth commission. It, it only investigated for 18 months, so it should have been longer. There was a reparations commission. I, they did a terrible job. There was no search commission. There was some change to the to the institutions of the state, like the military and the police and others. But the reality is that most people in the communities haven't really felt like they're in a in a process of transitional justice. I think the example of Guatemala, however, is the fact that Guatemala still remains the only country in the world where a former head of state was prosecuted of genocide in its national courts. 
However, it didn't really happen as part of a transitional effort with transitional institutions or commissions. It happened through civil society. It happened through the prosecutor's office having some very brave prosecutors at a specific time. Civil society legal organizations that really gained the family's trust and really did their job well and pushed this case. And then the evidence recovered by the FAFG. So even though I think we're stuck, and when I see other places like Sri Lanka or others, I am afraid that transitional justice is such a long process that we have to sort of step back and measure it in the different stages. So if you really look at it, Guatemala is just going over, what, 25 years this year since the signing of the peace. And most transitional justice processes last around four to five decades. So we're a little over half. And so far, I would say we're not doing a great job as a state. However, I do believe that civil society has done an amazing job in Guatemala. And I think that's what we should be looking at in parallel, that there is this possibility of beginning a transition that comes from within, that doesn't necessarily rely on state institutions and commissions, which Guatemala had. Again, it had a truth commission and it was it was it did an amazing job. But I see, for example, now that there are search commissions for the disappeared in Sri Lanka and Colombia and El Salvador and Peru and Mexico, and they're not achieving what I think the families want. They're not really finding and identifying the disappeared. And so that's the other problem, right? That you create commissions, but if you don't monitor them properly, then what is, what's the point? Is it only because they're in a, in a peace agreement? Or do we really want results? And I think in Guatemala, we've been able to provide results without the support that's needed for a process like this. So I wouldn't recommend it. I wouldn't recommend you do things the way that have been done in Guatemala, but we have been able to do a lot. Michelle, what is uh, your view on this uh, issue of uh, transitional justice and its achievements in Guatemala? Well, as Freddie was saying that... Um not much has been done and uh, we do feel like we are not progressing anymore. We had some cases that went uh, to court that were prosecuted, but that happened uh, uh, years ago and uh, we're, we are not seeing this anymore. Uh, it was a couple of very important cases like the genocide case and then uh, that has stopped. And, and as Freddie was saying that actually all of the forensic work uh, that uh, in the process framed into the process of transitional justice has been done also by a civil society organization like us, like FAFG. The government didn't get involved in any of this uh, part of the, of the transitional justice process. So that's uh, basically my view, the same. I share what, what Freddie was saying, that uh, not a lot has been done and um, the process has been unique in Guatemala because it has been led by civil society. But uh, we still haven't advanced as much as we would like to, as the family members would like to. I don't know if I may. I, I think one of the really important things is to understand that sometimes there's a lot of international pressure put on different states to move forward. And when, when it's done because of pressure and it's not genuine, then things fall apart. Again, Sri Lanka is probably the best example currently of what that means. But even if you look at Colombia now, you know, Colombia has, you know, a truth commission, it has the HEP, and it also has a search commission. And while these 
three state institutions in a place where there's a lot of political will, there's a lot of support, there's a lot of resources, and still they're sort of jumping back in and out of conflict on a daily basis. And it almost feels like instead of going forward politically, which it looks like they are, in the actual conflict, they're going backwards. And it looks like it's starting up again in parts of, of Colombia. So I think it's really complicated. And, I, and sometimes I wonder if we're not trying to put a recipe to how do you fix a, a society after conflict. And sometimes, as you know, being from the Balkans, it's not that simple, right? A lot of times, if you don't fix the structural reasons for the conflict to begin with, then it's just like putting a Band-Aid on a big cut. It's not really going to fix anything. You got to go back and try to fix inequalities and lack of education, lack of health services. In Guatemala, there's so many lacks. There's so much need that I don't think it's the fault of transitional justice itself. It's just the fact that you know Guatemala needs to fix many other things that brought on the conflict to begin with. Speaking of the international context, uh, this is also uh, an important aspect of your work. Uh, already in the early 90s, the forensic team started working in other regions uh, beyond Guatemala. And uh, the FAFG also works sharing uh, its capacities internationally, which is really important. And uh, you both have had experience working in other regions. So Michelle, where have you worked and what was your experience of this? Why is this important to work in other regions and with other civil society actors? We believe that local capacity must be built in all the countries that we work with. We train and we share our experience with different regions and different countries, and we we foster local capacity. We believe that this work needs to be done uh, in accordance to the local laws and also with uh, respect of family members' traditions and, and decisions. So uh, we've worked in several countries. I personally worked in Sri Lanka and Bangladesh, and uh, we were trying to work in Sri Lanka with the search commission, as Freddie was saying, but uh, the current political situation in Sri Lanka doesn't allow that this type of work to be done. And uh, we also have a project with the Rohingya population uh, in the refugee camps in um, Bangladesh, uh, the Rohingya that were uh, pretty much expelled from Myanmar and that, that are now in the refugee camps in Bangladesh. So we went there also uh, to try to understand what are the family needs and, uh, and cultural traditions in regards to identifying and search and identifying the, the remains of, of the rogue ones that were left in Myanmar. So I participated in that uh, mission as well. I've also participated in uh, the Transitional Justice Academy as part of the GIHITR consortium, also with the Forensic Academy. And uh, in the Forensic Academy, we have uh, several participants from different countries. And uh, what we're trying to do is also share our experience and also train them in forensics. And um, we train activists, academics, uh, practitioners, so they understand how to carry out this multidisciplinary process and how to support their local programs and their local search for the disappear. 
right now, uh, we used to bring the participants, bring them to Guatemala so they could learn uh, firsthand, a firsthand experience in all of the technical process. Uh, we took them to exhumations. Uh, they spent a whole day in the genetics laboratory, also in the forensic anthropology laboratory. They shared with family members, with the prosecutor's office. And um, they spend a, a very intensive training in Guatemala. Now, because of the pandemic, we had to uh, change some of the way that we used to share our experiences. And now we are uh, doing an online course to try to share all of the, the technical part of the investigation and how you can use different forensic disciplines in a holistic approach. Uh, so you can uh, search and identify missing persons. Eddie, uh, you worked also in the former Yugoslavia, including uh, on the Srebrenica genocide. Could you tell us a bit about that? I did. I participated with the ICTY exhumation team early on in 1997. I was really young. It was really important in my life, in my professional life, in, in life in general. I, I'd never seen anything like that, you know, large-scale killings that way. Because in Guatemala, I mean, even though there was many, many people killed, they were killed in smaller numbers. Uh, and Srebrenica was, you know, I was, I led one of the exhumation sites in uh, a place called Lazete, when they took some of the people, some of the men to the Orahobats school. I, I learned a lot about the importance of this work for justice processes there. I learned how important it was to treasure what we have. <laughs> Uh, in other words, not only did I take what I learned from Guatemala, but I gained a lot from working in, in Bosnia and Herzegovina in those years. Eventually, I did get to testify in four of the trials in The Hague, including the Mladic case and Karadic, Popovic. And uh, it just taught me of you know how when it, the international community really wants to do something, I can. I was, I do have to say, a bit jealous of all the attention that the Balkans got in comparison to the attention that Guatemala got, which is not much even now, or even Rwanda at the time, right? Even Rwanda, there was the, and I think that's something that we also have to remember that these mass atrocities also do happen to take place in a very political, racially motivated world where not everyone gets the same treatment and I also, you know, got the opportunity to see a different culture, one that I identified very much with. And uh, yeah, working in the, in the Balkans completely changed me for the better and, and allowed me to also bring a lot of the larger logistical aspects of the work into, into Guatemala with no resources. You know, I worked for the UN there, so we had all the resources in the world. And here we worked in a tiny little NGO, so it was very different. But the, the result was the same. The importance of the work is the same. Thank you both for taking the time to talk to me. I think the insights uh, from the work of the FAFG are really important for the post-Yugoslav space as well, with more than 10,000 people still missing more than two decades after the wars ended. This was Memory Cultures in Dialogue, the podcast of the Humanitarian Law Center. Thank you for listening. Slušali ste podcast Fonda za humanitarno pravo.